Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of the latest films and insights into the craft of directing. The Director's Cut is now available on Spotify, so please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Adam Robitel's new thriller, Escape Room. Capturing the cultural zeitgeist of Puzzle Box Escape Rooms, the film follows a group of adventurous game players vying to win $10,000 by cracking a series of puzzles in a mysterious building. But what begins as seemingly innocent fun morphs into a living nightmare as they discover that each room is an elaborate trap in a sadistic contest of life or death. In addition to Escape Room, Mr. Robitel's directorial credits include the feature films Insidious, The Last Key, and The Taking of Deborah Logan. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Robitel spoke with director Christopher Landon about filming Escape Room. During their conversation, Mr. Robitel discusses taking on the project knowing nothing about escape rooms, why the billiards room was the toughest part of the film to shoot, and the careful planning required for properly integrating the puzzle of the room within the progress of the narrative. Hi, everybody. Hey, guys. Uh-oh. How many of you have been to an escape room? I'm just curious. Okay, so a few people. Like a half. few people. That's not true. You're actually in one now. We didn't tell you. Yeah, the doors are locked. Um, By the way, this is my first time moderating anything, so this might be a little bumpy, but uh, hang on. Um, You're doing fine, bud. Thank you, thank you. So I think first question, you you did a film called The Taking of Deborah Logan, uh, which was a really scary found footage movie. So if anyone's into that stuff, it's a a really cool movie. Um, And then you directed uh, Insidious 4. Um, and so what was your, what was your path to this movie? I was, uh, uh, I, and thank you DGA for doing this great screening by the way. And thank you for moderating Chris. Sure. Chris hooked me up with my first studio uh, gig. So I'm forever indebted. That was a bad one. Or cursing his name (laughs) depending on the day. But, um, I was in post on Insidious and, uh, um, I had just signed with CAA at the time and they had a relationship with the producers, Neil Moritz and, uh, Ori Marmer over at original film. And they brought me in and they very under lock and key and they gave me a script and I had to read it in the office. And, uh, I admitted, I read it and, and, uh, admittedly I'm an old fart who had never, I hadn't even heard of an escape room. I don't really, I don't really go out much. Um, and, uh, but Ori explained to me how wildly popular they are and how there's like 500 in LA County alone and there's like all over Asia and it's the thing that all the kids are doing. And so I quickly ran out and uh, I was very poker faced and then I ran out and did a bunch of research. I did like 10 rooms and uh, my my writer and uh, her boyfriend are really good at them, but I'm terrible at them. But what I quickly saw is how visual they are, you know, a, a really cool room. Like you'll, you'll solve one riddle and a black light will turn on that there was a hidden map behind you that was there all the time. You didn't see it. And so I, I got really excited about what visually we could do and how the rooms could transform. And so 
yeah for, and, and then i just was like all in and and um but did you bring like uh did you go back to them and have like a lookbook did you present yeah, something I mean, that I, really sold them on on you as a director yeah, I I uh, I always go big when I audition because you 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 try to go go swinging for the fences and yeah I, I I usually do a lookbook I did some animated previs um, there was a the sort of the opening scene which we shot all practically but that existed in the first script because we did a uh, a variety of iterations and my big thing was to. I said to them, look, you guys, if you're going to do a 10 Little Indians movie, it's ultimately about people dying in rooms. Like, you have to make the characters interesting and make them puzzles. And so that was the big sort of like, here's my pitch. It's like, here, you guys have a really cool idea, but uh, it's going to get boring real fast unless there's something that the audience can lean into. And so they liked that idea. And, um, and yeah, I, I had a great, I have this great storyboard artist who animates storyboards, and uh, that's what helped me get insidious and then ultimately uh, land this gig. That's, a, that's smart. The, it brings me to my next question, which is, um, so when you, when you officially came on board to direct this, um, how closely were you working with the writer? How many drafts did you go through with, with the writer before you actually started to roll? We, uh, Maria Melnick came in and she was writing on Gods, uh, Gods and Monsters. Yeah, no, no, that would be weird. Uh, that movie has already been made. Um, uh, she was working on uh, American Gods, and she's a really talented TV writer. And she came in with this great pitch of like, why don't we make this movie about trauma and how trauma, how different people respond to trauma in different different ways? And I really loved that idea because at the end of a movie like this, you want some characters to feel str like they've had some sort of catharsis. And uh, yeah, we were deeply involved. I mean, we did a lot of research, and then. Uh, the set pieces because they were so specific and we had all these hero props. I mean, everything had to ultimately be on the page. Um, and uh, so we worked hand in hand. I think we did probably three or four drafts. Uh, really, it was a rapid pace, but we were, I think I, I landed the gig in uh, January and then it was a good six months of writing. Um, and then I was on my way to Cape Town, South Africa in June uh, or, or early July. So <clears throat> it was quick, but it was, it was very fastidious. And Maria, Maria was amazing. I mean, she really, like me, she hadn't even heard of an escape room. And she went and did a bunch of research. And, you know, the little things, like the way that how linear the... Uh, please, please stop me if I'm rambling. Um, <laughs> you, can, no. you can cut me off at any time. But each of the, you know, unlike most movies where if a scene isn't working or if there's a moment in a scene that isn't working, you can cut it out. Here, because everything was linear and each clue had to lead to each clue, it was much harder. And so everything had to be on the page. Uh, and everything was, you know, you think about like a, 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 um, a cuboid of ice with a key in it. That's a hero prop. And that takes weeks and weeks and weeks to develop. And um, so everything, by the time we started rolling cameras, every, the script was basically what you see. Right. Yeah. So this, I, I think one of the big stars of the movie um, are the rooms themselves. They are they are characters unto themselves. Um, and so these set pieces had to be incredibly challenging to execute. Um, how did you how did you approach these? Like, I mean, in terms of I, I, you've talked about um, previs and storyboarding. Was was everything very 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 carefully mapped out? Yeah, I mean, I thank you for saying that. I mean, this is my third film, and uh, each one is like a great new sandbox, and I feel like I learned. I, I, first of all, I had an amazing team. Um, Ed Thomas, who was my production designer, he's from Wales, and he's shot probably 100 movies in Cape Town. 
and they have an amazing infrastructure. There's no other place on the planet that I could have made this movie other than Cape Town for the resources. And he hit the ground running two months before I got to South Africa and started building. And uh, it's incredible down there. I mean, they have amazing craftspeople. And, you know, it's like, oh, I you mean, need to... The scale of the movie is huge. And the, yeah. the budget, reported budget, is like nine or yeah. ten million, which it's hard to believe yeah, looking yeah. at this movie. I mean, it looks like a much well, just to put things in perspective, I mean, you know, if I shot this movie in L.A. locally uh, at a $9 million budget, I would have probably, if I was lucky, got 30 days. And in Cape Town, I had 43 plus 13 days of splinter unit. So the money goes much further. And um, so so Ed was amazing. And, uh, and then Mark Spicer, my DP, who is just this lovely, he's like my spirit animal. And he's just this Australian guy he comes in and like kisses you on the lips. And he's like, and, and he just, he just, he exuded this sort of passion for the movie. And so between the two of them, to answer your question long windedly, I, I, we blocked out everything. We had the sets in three dimensional space in SketchUp, which is this app that I use. We would pick camera lenses. And, you know, the, the, big, the big thing I always laugh at at myself is I try to pre-block where the actors are going to go. And then, of course, on day one, you get them all into a space and it's like herding cats and they all have their own ideas. And so you're like, all right, let's throw that idea out. But, but the spirit of it, because of all the prep that we did, um, and I use, I use these overhead story, this, uh, this thing called Shot Designer, which is really useful because it gives you an overhead view of the set and then it shows you where your cameras are and where your blocking is. And so I, I give that to all my departments so that everybody knows where, you know, uh, where they need to be on the day. And, and, and then it, if something happens or if you deviate, it's fine because you've done the legwork, you know. Right. Which, which room, which sequence was the hardest? Okay, so the billiard room, which was like sort of that we always knew was going to be the showstopper. Uh, and w by the way, when I w went to Cape Town, they were like, you, you guys can't do this scene. It's too complicated. And we, it was a giant fishbowl set, and uh, it was full 360 degrees, and it was six feet off the floor uh, with, so that we could light a green screen and, separate, and do separation and stuff. And just getting like, what are the days, you know, where's the flyable walls, and how do you get a crane in, and how do we make Deborah Ann Wall safe, you know, because her harness, her safety harness had to go up through the set onto the scaffolding. So it was super complicated. Her trajectory of her climb and her fall, everything had to be meticulously laid out on, on the set. So, and then a lot of visual effects. And so we did a lot of previs. We previs that whole s sequence. And um, it, it was the most, I, I would say, the definitely by far the most difficult. And you know, looking back, I mean, we had, I think we had seven or eight days in that, in that room. And as a director, you know, I, I was at another Q&A last night and one of the young kids in the audience was like, why didn't you set up all the characters? And I was like, well, I had to make a choice of going and spending a day on the, on the highway, setting up Deborah Ann Wall's character or spending another day in this massive set that they're going to eventually tear down. So, uh, yeah, so the billiard room by far yeah. had us behind the eight ball. Was there any particular moment while you were filming um, where something that you had planned, something that you had either boarded or sort of that you had set in mind just wasn't clicking, wasn't working, and you had to figure out something else? Or was it all so carefully... Um, yeah, uh, there was there was definitely one snafu where the, there was a shot in the movie where I thought, oh, okay, if the whole puzzle and the whole room is inverted and upside down, wouldn't it be cool if when we come around the corner and we find Deb and she opens the safety deposit box, if, if, um, 
if the ball falls up into her hand. And we had this really great spanking new techno crane and it didn't work and it was two hours burning and we were running out of time. And then they dusted off this ancient crane that had no business being on a set, let alone operating and it, and it finally worked. So, um, but you know, other things like, you know, I had a, a crew member fall through a ceiling and, uh, uh, that terrified me and I shut down production for a couple hours because safety is my number one concern. And so things like that. But for the most part, it was, it was really, I was able to do everything that I tried to set out to do. Um, you know, cre- I had to make creative decisions, which I'm a bit of a non sequitur, but like, you know, the ice room projection wall and seeing that Vista, for example, uh, creatively, I knew I couldn't afford to do a bunch of set extensions through the whole scene. It's like a 12 minute sequence. It would have cost me a ton of money. And so I built it into the story. I said, what if they walk into, what if one of the characters walks into it and it, you know, it, it futzes and then it shuts off. And so things like that, that once you get into the brass tacks of making the movie and you realize you have limited resources, you have to make those decisions. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, the, do you feel like this is this is the movie that you set out to make from start to finish? You know, often we get into these these situations, these projects, and then you go and you and you test the movie, and it's typical that the ending changes. Yeah, um, I think that's kind of especially I think in this particular genre. Yeah. Um, so, what was that process like for you? Yeah, the ending was always tough, and you know. <sighs> when you peel back the veil on a movie like this and you go, who's behind it and why? And it's, and we, I don't know that we stuck the land. We, and even now it's like, cause we had initially the ending was, uh, Zoe goes back to her. So she gets out and, uh, she gets gaslit as, as happens in the cut you saw. And she goes, she's devastated and she goes back to her dorm room and she finds like a Sudoku puzzle and she sees the logo, the Minos logo and, the, and it freaks her out. And then she follows another clue back to the academic hall. And long story short, she finds her mother's compass necklace underneath her desk. And it's like this devastating kind of creepy, like, did they cause her accident? And the puzzle maker comes on and you hear his voice and it was very creepy and, and Taylor did a great job. But it was very nihilistic, and so out of our test screenings, it was very clear that people wanted a bit of closure between Ben and Zoe, and they wanted a win. And and uh, my producers, uh, for better or worse, are always like, they've got to give them the win, got to give them the win. And so the trade-off was uh, to make Zoe and Ben, they've become friends, they're stronger through it, she wants to go on the on the attack, and then... I said, if you're going to end the movie as zany as it is, it's a, it, it, you know the suspension of disbelief. If you go for the ride, then I thought it would be fun to show one last set piece that was like a mind twisty kind of thing, and that's what we did with the airplane. Um, how do you feel about the new ending? If you had to like, if you had your choice, like which one you would show people? Yeah, I mean, I I really love it. I mean, I you know we brought in some great writers for like I've sort of a friends and family screening to sort of try to figure out like what's the best like one one pitch I loved which was crazy is like they end up at a an IHOP and they're talking and then like suddenly the windows shutter and you know like a painting falls <laughs> off and like a bunch of Japanese schoolgirls come out and they're all freaked out and and so there was a lot of crazy ideas uh, 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 bantered around and I, I still think this is cool because it's sort of a cabin in the woods kind of like you know, it's the, fu- it's the fun of the ride. And, and I didn't, the big thing is like, I always felt like in the first movie, you don't want to, and there's a lot of exposition. The, the games master has a big speech and it got much bigger in post because of 
notes uh, that I, I would have, my one lament is how much he says versus, because initially it was much less information and I thought it was way more elegant. Um, but oh, Is that a test audience that was yeah. driving? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the test audience is always, it's like, oh, you had that one person who is confused. And so I think the knee-jerk reaction is to over-explain everything. And, and uh, you know, you and I were talking on the, on, in the lobby, and that's sort of the problem with focus groups, you know. So yeah, I always say that I love, I love the cards. And I hate the focus groups. Yeah. Because focus groups are more emotional and I feel like they can be driven by like one alpha person in the oh, group. It's so that is like I hated that. Part oh no, of it's the true. Movie. It's totally and everyone starts they agreeing. Lead everybody's like, Yeah, I didn't like her. why was her hair red? You know, and then suddenly it's like everybody's like hating on red hair. But um what was really interesting was um when we had our so so there was so much pressure on me. Because they gave me, Sony gave me, you know, X amount of resources to go shoot this new ending. And uh, and if it didn't test better, you get this number, you guys all know this, but you get this number and it's very binary. And if your movie doesn't perform in the test screening, well then guess what? They might bury it and, you know, not market it. going to support it. They yeah. And, it. Uh, and so, so we had the test screening and it was very quiet. And unlike horror films, which you and I have made... You know a movie's working when people are screaming and, and they're, they're sort of reactive to the screen. And, and here, because it's more of a thriller, people were very, very quiet. And the focus group was terrible. I mean, one they picked the 20, like, I mean, they just, it was just like assassin, just total assassins on the movie. And so I was like, literally, my palms are sweating and I'm like this. And I was like, I failed. Oh, my God. On the, and, and then we got the number and the number was exponentially higher than the first uh, test screening. And so I was, I was had a stay of execution is how I felt. So, um, so now, so the movie comes out and it's been really well received. People really enjoy it. Um, it's doing very well. Um, there's always the, you know, how do you react to first and foremost critical response? Like, do you, do you take that very personally when you read reviews? Do you sit there and like, read everything and drive yourself crazy and then the the second part of that question is do you torture yourself on twitter like do you go to twitter and read the comments and and because i've 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 gone down that yeah i still go down that rabbit hole way yeah. too much um but i'm very curious about how you manage that part it's of the hard it hurts i mean i remember my first film just i i the first review we got was and from a from a genre website that i love and it, it has ultimately be, be, become very kind to me and they said it was creatively bankrupt and you know you work for so with with i think i've made peace with the fact that a movie like escape room while it's not my opus, it was it was a it was meant to be a ride, and so you know when the first couple of critical reviews look, I mean it wasn't written for Owen Gleiberman. It's about a room of death death rooms that kill people. Like it's you know, and so for me, I think uh, yeah, it does. It, you know what smarts the most, to be honest, is like those those kids living in their mom's basements who write those missives on Twitter and they're just, and they, they tag you and they're like, you know, this is the worst waste of my two hours of my life. And a lot of them drop expletives and, you know, and so you have to kind of get a thick skin. And for me at the end of the day, I, I'm really proud of what we were able to pull off knowing all the noise and how many voices and cooks in the kitchen there were. And, um, but yeah, it does, it does hurt a little bit, but I, but I also don't believe the hype. Like when somebody says it was amazing, that goes in one ear and out the other because I'm always thinking about like how I could have done something better. Yeah. Is that when you, after you make a movie and it's in theaters, 
how do you feel about watching it again? What's the experience of watching a movie that you've made again? Yeah, it's. I would rather castrate myself with a dull butter knife, <laughs> to be honest. Sounds yeah. fun. Yeah. No, I. I just. Uh, you know. I. Again, it's like you see every. So you see all the things. That I you see feel all like the flaws. You did wrong. I like, see all oh, the flaws. I should have done that yeah. differently. I mean, you know, if, if there's a genre loving crowd and they're loud and having fun, like I could maybe relax. But for the most part, it's it's tedious, and I like to just forget it. You know. Um, and my friend last night was guilting me, and we were at the Man's Chinese, and it was. Uh, I sat through it, and the whole time I'm like, you know, and you just you just get so inured to it because you've seen it so many times, and um, yeah. I've been told that when I watch my work, I make the I make really crazy faces, like angry, like crazy faces, and I start talking to myself, and I don't know I'm doing it. Um, I'll have to watch for that next yeah, time. Yeah, no, please don't. Um, so what's next? Uh, I am, I'm trying to crack the TV, TV, uh, nut. I have a couple of projects, one, uh, one, uh, horror series with, with Darren Aronofsky as an EP, which I'm super excited about. And, you know, we'll see, it's going to be a long road and, uh, like anything, they want to put you in a box. And I just think, um, you're able to do more nuanced storytelling and longer form and, and we'll see, you know, I had a, a director friend at the DGA, uh, who, who said, you know, don't. Don't stop making theatrical movies until they force you to. Um, but uh, TV seems where it seems to be really interesting these days. So you know, knock on wood. Yeah. If you had like a dream, a dream gig, a dream job, and it doesn't have to be like a specific thing, but like, what is there outside of the thriller genre? Is there another genre that you would love to work? I mean, in? I would like to make bigger thrillers. I mean, I love like what Denny's doing. I mean, I like a movie like Prisoners or something that's really dark and has a human condition quality to it. Um, you know, I'd love to go make a big monster movie because uh, uh, those are really fun. I mean, the comic book stuff doesn't appeal to me as much uh, unless it's really a, like a grounded sort of like if it's like a West, like Logan or something. But uh, I'm just kind of enjoying the ride right now. It's it's hard to find good material. You know, it's you you think that when you have when you join the ranks of a bigger agency, suddenly um, you're going to like mana from heaven, but it is, it is hard to find really good material. And, uh, I, I will say just candidly, I find myself in this sort of mindset of like, what's going to perform commercially. And I think that can be a bit of a dangerous mindset because you're always chasing that concept driven thing. And, uh, so now I'm kind of in this place of, Oh, should I go back and do something more personal that maybe doesn't find its audience the way that a big sort of four quadrant movie does. And that's always the push and pull. So so as as you make each film, um, is there like a takeaway? Did you is there something that you learned from making this movie that you did not understand before? Because I feel like each movie you make, it's sort of like having kids, and those kids teach you something new about yourself. Um, so I'm curious if there was anything that you discovered about yourself um, and and the kind of filmmaker that you are that you want to be from this, this particular movie? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I did learn, you know, the value of, I, I, I will say to all my future selves and directors out there is to really vet your cast and, you know, find out who, uh, who has a good attitude and who doesn't. I'll just leave that there. Uh, <laughs> and, and really call, it's not enough to email a director and say, hey, how is this person? It's like you should get them on the phone or take them to dinner and really ask them that question. Um, uh, but in terms of, um, yeah, yeah, uh, I'm just thinking out loud here. I can't wait to talk to you after this now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to uh, know. <laughs> no comment. Um, no. Um, no, it's just for me, it's uh, e each one you just, 
I always feel like I don't know what I'm doing, and it, you know, maybe some of you feel that way right now. And uh, we, uh, uh, but um, yeah, for me again, it goes back to the material, and I have written before, and it's uh, I think um, it all starts with that. If it's not on the page, it's never going to get on the screen, and I just think that writers are not valued as much as they should be. And um, so for me, it's uh, and I would have liked to have spent more time. There was a real time constraint here to go and make. There was an imperative to make the movie, and I want to get to a place where some of the bigger directors I know who can say, "No, we're not ready yet." You know, this is needs. You know, and even you know the luxury of spending a year on something. You know, Black Swan famously was like forty or fifty drafts, and it took two years. And like, if it's going to be really good, it's going to take time, and you have to honor that process. So I think that's the big my big takeaway is like. Really to really to put the pressure on the script, you know. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, Thank I you. Was, I think that was about it. No, that was, was great. Good. You were good, man. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, guys. Thanks for coming tonight. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.